The Digital Banking Podcast is powered by Typhoon. Typhoon is a dramatically better digital banking provider. Our appeal is unique. We collaborate closely with our customers and the banking ecosystem in an open approach coupled with a powerful user experience that helps get things done. On our podcast, you will hear how digital banking plays a leading role for community-minded financial institutions from the unique perspectives of our industry expert guests. You know, your podcast hasn't officially made it until there's ads in it, but this is one you're not going to want to skip past. And if you do, feel free to hit that fast forward 15 seconds button twice. Ever wonder what gives me my energy and enthusiasm during these podcasts? You know, outside of my relentless desire to learn about, connect, share, and build up community FIs and their mission to support the communities they serve, it's coffee (laughs) and lots of it. Now, you want to know what's better than your regular old coffee? How about donating $5 to the Children's Miracle Network hospitals through Credit Unions for Kids every time you purchase high-quality, ethically-sourced coffee that also provides living wages to coffee farmers? So if you want to listen to this episode with epic levels of caffeine-induced focus and help kids in need, head to javaforkids.org to learn more and buy a bag or 10. Thanks. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Banking Podcast. My guest today is Kareem Rafai, the Managing Director of the London Institute of Banking and Finance for the Middle East and North Africa region. You know, one of the greatest things hosting this podcast has given me is the opportunity to meet people from all over the world with different perspectives, ideas, and challenges to my own. My guest today, Kareem, spends more time in airports than I do, and his travels take him all over the Middle East, Asia, Europe, Africa, and North America even. And, you know, Kareem made a comment to me prior to this episode that, you know, when you're a teenager, the vast majority of the time... The thing that you think you're going to be when you grow up ends up being total BS. But in his case, he did actually go to school for banking and finance in Egypt and ultimately did end up in this space. But he found his calling in being a liaison in the banking industry between the business side of the house and the people side of the house. And in his time in the industry and in his travels, he's found one thing to be globally true. There's more commonality than differentiation. From the U.S. to Australia, tip to tip, you'll find more similarities than differences. And in banking, when a company like Apple has to move money between any and all U.N. countries, it's got to work. So ultimately, we are all in this together. And Kareem really wants to explore and educate to ensure that people are at the center of making it all work. So Kareem, thank you for joining me today on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Josh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, you know, before we jump in, I think it'd be really great to spend just a couple of minutes to give folks a little bit of an idea of the London Institute of Banking and Finance. Talk to us a little bit about what your guys' mission is, what you're doing, and then I'd love to learn a little bit more of what does a day in the life of Kareem look like other than probably doing what uh, some of us know too well, which is running from gate to gate. So, yeah, maybe start by taking us through a little bit of who the organization is and then what your your day in the life is like. Okay. The London Institute of Banking and Finance, it's a royal chartered non-for-profit organization established in the UK at the year of 1879, 144 years back. All that good that you can find on our website, 
why they found that institute 144 uh, years back. Because there was bankers, bank workers back then in the UK, in London, felt like the industry required some standards, some compliance. There is a missing of certain challenges like morals and conduct of the industry to consumers and all these kinds of things. Huh? 143 years back. Doesn't sound like that recent, you know? It's the same challenge that we're facing. Any industry is facing is trying to evolve and, and improve. So the London Institute of Banking and Finance, in simple, we do four things. We are specialized in banking and finance education, but we diversified in our solution. If you are a child, six years old plus, to a senior citizen of in retirement, there is a banking and finance education we can provide to you. We have financial education, lessons in financial education for kids in schools in different countries around the world. We have the programs for underprivileged people for supporting financial inclusion. Then we have our university campus in London, and we deliver our bachelor degrees and master's degrees and online postgraduate degrees around the world for bankers, banking and finance, vocational education for practitioners who are looking to advance their career. And as well, we do consultancy, accreditation, endorsement of other education standards around the world for banking and finance. So that's in, uh, in short what we do. And then, so what does a day in the life of your life look like? Okay. I... Uh, yeah. If I'm not running between gates or like I'm in lounge, <laughs> lounge getting, a, getting a team meeting on Zooms or a team or something like that, I would be in my office uh, or with my students or with the, the community through uh, conferences, uh, online and offline uh, discussions uh, to speak about the future of industry, a, the mandate ahead of us as bankers, and how we can also bring a new generation of both a, uh, bankers and customers who both are financially savvy to be able to have this perfect relationship between uh, both sides of the uh, of the transaction. Yeah, you know, you made the comment about, you know, so you actually have a little bit of background in the human resources side of things. What ultimately made you decide that that was something that you were really passionate about? A uh, education, uh, see, when you make a difference in, every, in anyone's life, you will sleep tight at night. You know, that's very, uh, very important for me. A, um, that you can make a mindset change. You can improve a process. You can improve a, uh, a business. You can change someone's life through education that would last forever. So such impact. And an institute like London Institute of Banking and Finance is making in different categories of any community we work in is the thing that makes me either like go between gate to gate or even stay in my office, try to do more than actually working in airports. Because actually being in the airports is the easy part, you know, traveling and doing over the easy part, but being in office, working with the students is more, more interesting and exciting because that's where you actually do the change. You, you do the, uh, the difference in people's lives. A lot of my students in Middle East and the region, like 80% of our students are female below age of 25. And that's a very important factor for us, you know, that we make change. We empower younger generations. Uh, and uh, also, uh, it's uh, very interesting that we also bring those difficult, challenging topics to the region to help support the development like digital transformation, fintech, sustainability, sustainable finance. 
we discussing the, and we are delivering education in, in niche areas that still the region required more research and education in. So we're trying to bring the best of both worlds, where we come from and where we are practicing to support our reason of existence in the region. I have to imagine that, you know, a day in your life is also pretty fascinating in that the regions that you service are, you know, countries of contradictions, right? In some fairly serious haves and have nots. And, you know, obviously when we're talking about banking and finance and have and have nots, those two kind of go hand in hand, right? So it's got to be some really interesting dichotomies between, you know, like an oil producing nation versus an impoverished nation. So what do those travels and conversations look like for you? And what kind of things do you learn out of seeing kind of some very wildly varying extremes, I'm sure? It's very inspiring to work in the Middle East region because let's put like some basics of our discussions when we talk about Middle East. Yes, there is part of parts of the Middle East where it's very known for being a wealth concentration due to the oil production and other uh, resources uh, that support the GDP. But also there's other countries where it might not have the same resource, access to resources, but they have another resource, which is the human resource. We have the population that would make difference in their GDP and future economy. What's recently happening in the Middle East is very interesting in the past let's say 12 years or 10 years, a, uh, is that governments now are trying to impose and facilitate ecosystems to support the creation of innovation within the region, to start motivating younger generations to be involved in production of the, if we talk about our industry, if we new startups, new fintechs, new uh, companies. And they are all inspired about the stories of, of, of startups to unicorn that we, we always hear in the U.S. And we had a couple of unicorns happened in the Middle East, a, acquired by major players in, in the North American side, like Amazon acquiring, for example, Souk, which was a Dubai-based company, a, uh, Uber acquiring Karim. And we're talking about unicorns, proper unicorns, you know, at that time of, 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 of uh, transactions. So it happened. So it inspired more. It wasn't like just a dream. That dream came through a couple of times. So that's how it inspired the region to start pushing out there. They see a lot of most of the governments, most of the regulators we work with, they see technology and empowerment of younger generation through SMEs, through lending, through VCs established in the, in the region. It is possibly one of the major contributions for the future uh, growth of uh, GDP or, or economy in the, in the Middle East. That's an interesting perspective because you can have... You know, I, of- I, I feel, Josh, I feel like I'm sounding a little bit boring. I'm talking so technical. So like, you know, I'll, I'll try... No, to no, 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 no. About- I, 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 I actually thought that was fascinating, right? Because you think about the dilemma of you can have all of the money in the world, Right. But if you don't have the people and the passion and the desire to evolve and innovate behind it, sometimes you may actually move slower than somebody who's just got the people resource and just the grit to get it done. Um, you know, I think we see that happen um, a lot of times in just you know global events that happen, right? Think of things like the Industrial Revolution and major milestones in human history. And, you know, it's that forced into the requirement to evolve and innovate. And sometimes when we get too comfortable 
and we have too much access, you know, first world problems lead to maybe not necessarily actually pushing the envelope as much as we could or should. And so having that people resource is also really important. You know, Joshua, really, out of what you're saying, have just came to my mind now that a lot of companies around the world, they depend on consultants or they go to, uh, to try to research innovation processes of other companies so they can empower their own organization to have an innovation process. And, you know, sometimes I found this little bit ridiculous, at least for me. Okay. Why? Because, like, it is so stereotype or typical to try to follow someone else's innovation process, then where's the innovation? Uh, do you agree with me? Innovation is an inspiration of a different dynamics within the living organism, which called the, the corporate or the company, that needs certain observation from case stakeholders and leaders to be able to open channels for people to be able to achieve more through the talent they have inside. But it's not one size fits all. It's not all roads leads to Rome. It is a fingerprint in each and every country. If you take it on, on, on region level, country level, corporate level, even with your kids, if you want to have an innovation process in your house, you, you, you need to, to give the, uh, to do it differently your own way. Yeah. I think that's a great point too, in that there's a difference between evolution and innovation right? Just continuing to evolve and make something slightly better versus saying, you know what, that's kind of how we've always done it. Is it actually the right way to do it? Let's do something completely different, right? I mean, again, you you think back over, you know, human history and somebody at some point had to invent the wheel and nobody had done that before, right? So somebody had to say, we're going to do something very different. We're not going to just keep slightly evolving what we're doing today. We're going to do something completely different. True. I agree. You know, one of the comments that you had made to me that I found fascinating is that you were saying, you know, a lot of times in your exposure, you see that, you know, the U.S. kind of looks at the rest of the world in one lens and the rest of the world kind of looks at the U.S. in another lens. Um and you made the comment that, you know, a lot of times, you know, you you're having conversations with folks in different countries and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, everybody in the U.S. is probably riding around in their hover cars and, you know, transacting with space money at this point. And and then, you know, the U.S. a lot of times looks at, you know, other countries and feels like maybe they're in the Stone Age or doing something completely different. Right. Like we feel that European markets are extremely different from U.S. markets sometimes. And in your travels, you say, well, one, the U.S. is obviously not riding around on hover cars. I can confirm that. At least I don't have one. But, you know, you made the comment that even you still go into a physical branch, right, to do a lot of your transactions when you're in North America. And like you were just talking about, right, with the human capital, a lot of times you're actually seeing some really incredible innovation happen in other parts of the world. So I don't know, maybe talk to me a little bit about what you see there. See, it is a bit of, I don't want to sound a little bit uh, challenging to, to this, but this is a bit of a human nature. Because sometimes when you do something and you feel you're doing it good, you think that no one else is doing it, you know, or you're leading, you're leading into that leak. You're like in, you crashed. 
but I crushed it. But actually, based on on, I would say I can confirm to you that co- corporate banking trading options and different consumer segments in the U.S. it's advanced to other sides of the world. But going to the opposite side, consumer banking and finance and and those stuff on other sides of the world are far advanced, far advanced than what we see in the U.S. For example, the challenge is also. That goes back to our our discussion about there is no one size fits all when it comes to the way you innovate and move forward. U.S. We're talking about three hundred and fifty plus million. Uh, it's a continent, not a country. You know, very big land. A uh, let's talk about infrastructure, internet accessibility of of technology and internet. You know, high speed internet and all these kinds of things will put limitation to certain people. So, classic banking and finance should remain there. You know. For certain people, till infrastructure improve for people in certain area. A when we then versus talking about, for example, uh, Japan, hundred million, okay, one third. But the dynamics and geographics of of Japan, Japan, it's easier for them to have an more technology infrastructure and facility. So then I can do something on consumer level in Japan better than doing something in U.S. because consumer there is a lot of consumers in U.S. out of coverage. You know, they need the, the classic start. But on the other side, we see in the U.S., the concentration of big corporation is in major states, you know. So then that concentration within that technology platform, then the investment banks, the fund managers, all those kind of things with their technology and advancement and corporation that work in corporate and, and banking are concentrated around the uh, that these states. So then they can advance things. So there is different dimensions you know, it's it's not. That's why, a uh, as we said, that you go anywhere in the world, you give a uh, a list of ten top ten challenges of a banker, or the banking and finance industry anywhere in the world. I guarantee you, eight of these will will be common. You know, if you ask a bank, you ask an insurance, you ask a regulated, everyone would at least have eight common out of the ten uh, challenges, and they are working on. I think what we really need to do more is to talk to each other, to find ways. Like, for example, I talk to you from a Middle East background and experience. You're here and uh, there in the U.S. And you still understand. <laughs> you can understand my challenge, you know. So that's even a proof of concept. Yeah, we see a lot of that, I think, in just the U.S. pocket. You see a lot of collaboration happens in our industry especially amongst the community financial institutions that I primarily work with, right? And going back to the comment you made from earlier, right? The the geography of the U.S. is a big factor in this, right? It's a very, very vast landscape. There are big stretches, believe it or not, where there's really nobody or no infrastructure. And so you look at the banking model and why it's worked so well in the U.S. is we're made up of a lot of local, small community financial institutions. So we're able to service those small pockets. Whereas if it was just one or two or three major national global banks that were trying to service the U.S., it'd be a very different model. But when you look at other countries, you know that model doesn't necessarily apply as well. But what's interesting is that, like you were saying, the, the commonalities and challenges are still very similar And where there's lots of collaboration maybe between a community bank in Kansas 
and a credit union in Denver, are they actually having collaboration with, say, somebody in Australia? Um, and what are the things that they could learn from having conversations with each other? But, you know, Josh, that takes us to a very important element of the industry now. And I think it's the least topic that is discussed recently. And the statistic is very, very shocking, is financial inclusion, you know? Because we talk a lot about digital transformation. We talk a lot about, for example, fintech, uh, sustainability, startups, all these kinds of things. Even the progression of community banks and credit unions, uh, B lenders and, and C lenders to, to start being more involved. And we forget a major factor about the definition of financial inclusion. Recent statistics from the World Bank says that at least 40% of the uh, based on the, what they were able to research and find in the pockets of the world. So definitely there's undercovered kind of <laughs> of population, but it's still like around 40% of the people around the world, they don't have access to financial institutions or financial services. This is sad, you know, because what is the definition of financial inclusion? Also, a lot of people define financial inclusion about like, for example, accessibility and ability to transact with financial institution. It's not financial inclusion. Financial inclusion is when people being able to understand what is money, how to save, how to invest, and how to how they can keep time value of money and use it in the most effective way. One of the effective ways of using your wealth and money is to transact with financial institutions. So it's not only because a lot of countries do initiatives I see around the world, in Africa especially. They try to ask farmers, for example, by giving them some hotspot internet and like ability to open account. But if you do this and you put it in the media, then at, at the end of the day, they don't know how, what is the difference between debit and credit or how I spend my money or how I manage it. So actually, actually you give a gun to someone that they don't know how to use it because they might choose themselves. So, you know, so education with accessibility is very important and integral part of financial inclusion. You know, even in the U.S., I think our statistics are, what, about 15% of Americans are still considered underbanked and about 5% are considered unbanked. So, you know, back to the comment you made from earlier, you know, sometimes we think we're doing the best. We, we think we're doing pretty darn good over here. We think, you know, America is doing a great job with diversity and inclusion and education and providing financial services and offerings to U.S. consumers, but we still have a large pocket of folks that are un and underbanked. You know, I made the comment on a recent podcast, too, about just, you know, being in a Walmart and seeing on a Friday afternoon the line of people going to cash their paychecks at a Walmart, right? Um, so if that's happening here in the U.S., exactly to your point, you know, what's happening in countries that truly have very large percentages of unbanked and underbanked? And the solution isn't necessarily just plopping in a, you know, credit union <laughs> right in the middle of Africa and say, congratulations, you now have financial services. You're set. You're good. Right. Like that's like, yeah, like your uh, travel's the easy part, right? The travel's the easy part. The dropping in a credit union or a bank, that's the easy part. But actually getting people to be able to understand what they now have access to and how to use it appropriately. That's the challenge. Yeah, because on the other side, let's look to other other countries around the world where there is concentration of wealth. 
and most of the population average income is like hundred thousand dollars or whatever, like low populated countries. And we have some of these in the in, in Europe, for example, Scandinavian countries, GCC in in, in Middle East, like uh, oil production countries, low population, high GDP income, people are there. And you will see a high level of education, doctors, engineers, scientists, businessmen, everything you dream of of a population to work for is available. Great. And there is still a financial inclusion and financial literacy challenge. So you're asking Karim, how this happened? Because it's not part of the education, it's not part of the system. We don't grow how to deal with money. Yep. So you would find a doctor or an engineer, and I see a lot of them are my friends. They come to me and tell me, Karim, what is a current account? So like, are you asking me what's a chicken account? You know, you've been like an a 45 year old doctor who's been getting your salary on a chicken account for the past 20 years and you don't understand how to operate a chicken account. You find, for example, people having literally 20, 30 credit cards. They have a PhDs, you know, and, and we're speaking about worldwide common epidemic of credit cards. You know, you, we have it in the US, you have it in and literally everywhere in the world. I asked someone, like, if you have 15 credit cards, do you have 15 wallets? You know, <laughs> like, it's, it's physically the same. Like, why you have 15 wallets? And actually, in reality, you have 15 empty wallets because that's not your money. So the education. So we spoke about financial inclusion from a dimension when it comes to, uh, to accessibility and challenges for certain subcategories, maybe with lower income. But it doesn't end the story of the definition. The, on the other side of the fence, even being rich or wealthy doesn't mean your life is good. You know, it is still it's like you true. have because banks, because if you look to the credit criteria or banks credit criteria, banks focus on those people, you know, to try to become their customers. They try to work out for them products, services, digital transformation, fintech companies all coming out now. In U.S. and in Canada, for example, and in Europe, there's a lot of applications, mobile applications that link to your credit uh, point system, whatever it's called in any country, you know, and those. And I can put my profile up there and I get offers of like 70 million credit cards, you know, and I can in just two pushes of a button, I would get them mailed into my uh, mailbox in what, a week or less. You know, then I have accessibility of so many credit cards. That's one element with the consideration of the social media and fashion and, uh, and, and marketing push, which we call it in our industry, a uh, peer pressure. You know, the peer pressure comes in from lifestyle, from especially, you know, it's so sophisticated. Also, when you talk about teenagers and, and below 30, because they are the generation born within the social media. So they think. Driving a Lamborghini is easy, for example. They don't know how you have to work hard for a Lamborghini, you know? And and, and also... Uh, Wait, you can't put one of those naked. on a credit card? Uh, in some countries, you get <laughs> to, to put a Lamborghini on a credit card. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Believe me. In some countries, you'll find someone who has a credit card, which is like $200,000 credit card. Yeah. You know? So, like, you can literally put a Lamborghini. Might not be a Ferrari's, but, like, Lamborghini is good enough <laughs> as well. It's, it's a very expensive car. So that, that's also the challenge. Financial inclusion and financial uh, literacy, it's not for a specific group of the people. Actually, you know what's interesting? You find bankers 
who advise clients as financial advisors. And in reality, when it comes to the personal side of their life, they are not able to manage their own finances properly. Yeah, because not, of the peer pressure, the social challenges, and all these stuff. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. And especially, I had a guest on the show a while back, Merla Vandenacker. And she is a um, PhD student in human psychology. And we were talking about just the psychology of money <clears throat> and how you know retailers are making it easier and easier and easier to spend money. And what's happening is there's a huge disassociation between the work that you put in to get the money to what you're purchasing with that money, right? And she kind of made the extreme examples of, you know, if we were back in a, a barter and trade type of economy, you know, maybe I would have to work with iron and I would have to actually make horseshoes and I would have to, you know, take raw material and actually turn it into a horseshoe and it would take time and effort and I'd have to get dirty. And then, you know, my neighbor is a farmer and he farms potatoes and he's got to plant them. He's got to get up. He's got to take care of them. He's got to harvest them. And he needs horseshoes for his horse for plowing his fields. And I need potatoes to eat. And so we trade each other. But like, I know the effort I put into making those horseshoes. He knows the effort he put into growing those potatoes. But if I walk into an Amazon store where I don't even have to take out my wallet, it just recognizes who I am when I scan my Amazon app. I grab a handful of items and I just walk out. I don't even have to check out. And it just shows up in my Amazon cart later as a purchase. I'm so incredibly disassociated from that spend. And she gave credit cards as the example as well, right? Especially when it's someone else's money. It's really easy to disassociate from that spend and not realize, you know, that $500 handbag that I just bought, that, what did that actually take me to purchase? And a lot of times in our head, it's, well, it took me swiping my card. That, that was what it took me, but, but you don't realize what actually goes behind that. And so it is really interesting to see just how incredibly important the education side of this is for, like you said, it, this is a global problem. This is not a underdeveloped nations problem. This is not a rich, a poor problem. It's a people problem. Yeah. And you know, Josh, which is really interesting that like, I always say to students, to uh, stakeholders, to bankers and, and you know, all these kinds of things is that, you know, there is a drug addiction, there is a alcohol addiction, there's different gambling addiction, there's different clinically proven definitions and cases of certain addictions of life. And even recently, like I mean recently, when I passed 40, 45 years, obesity was defined now as a disease, you know, and it needs and medical interventions and support groups to be able to go out of, out of it. I think coming next, we should define managing money difficulties as a disease that would require addiction solution, maybe support groups, discussions, whatever, education as well, because I'll tell you something, inability of a parents to manage financial life over family and affecting the well-being of so many people around them, you know, kids, neighbors, friends, families, how many of us receives 
I, I don't want to say that we do, but like a lot of people receive calls about a parent who is not able to pay a uh, bill and you have to cover that. Or you've been by like a guarantor of someone, brother or sister who has difficulties and, and then you find yourself in a, in a financial difficulty because someone else. So it is managing money is education and incapability of managing your own money, which leads to difficulties at a certain level. It is a disease that requires a intervention. Money is such an integral part of our lives, pretty much irregardless of where you live, right? And it has such a huge impact on even just our emotional well-being. I mean, you look at one of the number one causes of divorce is money problems, right? Where um, is this? What's that? Where is that? Uh, in the Wh- US. Where is the, I'll tell you something. I have a statistics that 56% of divorce cases at the first three years of marriage in the Middle East is related to financials. Yeah. So we're talking the same language. We're talking the same when language. Yeah. When you said it, I thought about like, oh, you read some mistakes about Middle East divorce. You know, then you told me, no, no, Karim, that's in the U.S. Uh, actually, it's also in the Middle East. So any couple will divorce anywhere in the world when they face, face financial difficulties because nothing's sustainable when you're under financial pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at the the cascading effect that it has, right? I mean, just even think about it in your own life, like you were saying. I mean, friends, family, coworkers, right? It becomes very, very difficult to manage a lot of different elements of your life when you're just struggling to make your rent payment or um, to be able to pay for, you know, your children's education or put food on the table for them, kind of everything becomes secondary at that point. (coughs) So it has such a huge impact on us. And what's interesting is how I think a lot of, a lot of people take the just, you know, ostrich approach of bury their head in the sand and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm going to keep going down my same course right? Down, think, down, down, yeah, down, yeah, down. I think a lot of times, you know, we as a society, like you said, it, encourage that or even push it, right? And through the things like social media and peer pressure and, you know, trying to always, you know, have the next best thing, you know, you used uh, Apple as a reference from earlier and, you know, what, every year they tell us we want to buy a new $1,200 telephone. But to be very, uh, I don't want us to take, or I don't want to sound pessimistic about money management, but let's, let's take it to the positive side. What is really interesting, and also we're talking about digital banking, fintech transformation, sustainability, and all these kinds of things. What's really interesting, and I see around the world, most of the innovation happening through startups in the financial services industry, fintechs, name it whatever you want to name it in part of the world, okay? A lot of those young generation, different thinkers, who come into the industry, they bring a social aspect to their business. And I love seeing that around. And we as consumers now, more educated, I want to be a customer of a company that has a social responsibility. I don't want to give my dollar or my pound or whatever my currency code to someone that would just make more shareholders happy. I want someone who will make... See, you don't do business without return on investment. Okay? Absolutely. But also be mindful of the gap <laughs> that it's increasing between corporation wealth 
and human capital uh, challenges, <laughs> you know? So like, you know, and I love those companies that exist for See, if you don't, organizations will not survive without return on investment because that's the sustainability factor of it. But you can decide how much you need to survive in, how much would be about, right? And then pass over with a social responsibility. Because I'll tell you something, we saw in many parts of the world, you know, that if corporations are making money and people are not making money, at a certain point of time, people will turn their backs to the corporations and they will bankrupt and they will go out of market, you know? So that's that's very, very important element. There is a factor and we see that's going on. And actually that's putting a lot of pressure even in big corporations to start devising their ESG policies, their CSR, all these kinds of ideas around the world because organizations are asking, what is our reason of existence? Are we just to be, make more money to the shareholders or we have to put reason out there to make correlation between ourselves and our markets, which is, which is a very important factor. And actually, that's a, finan- a corporate financial well-being. You know, this is a corporate financial literacy. When the corporates understand that they have, they have to give back and contribute in a way or another. Ah, uh, man, I love that you took it this direction. You know, um, what is our purpose? Like, wh- why are we here? That is becoming more and more and more important to consumers. You know, it's always funny when we record these uh, these podcasts because you know, ultimately, when they actually get released and things, sometimes the timing gets a little wonky, but. You know, we're recording this the week of Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And uh, my wife and I this last weekend decided to start a new tradition. So we have a one and a half year old. So this is kind of his second Christmas and the first one where he'll start to really understand, you know, opening of presents and things. So we started a new tradition where, you know, this weekend before Thanksgiving, before everything gets mad, he goes over to uh, Bapa Yaya's Grandma Grandpa's for uh, play date and babysitting over there. And my wife and I went and did Christmas shopping. And, you know, we kind of made the comment to each other that we could pretty much these days do all of it online. But what was important to us was to make memories out of that experience. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to do more of that as our kind of quote shop local and small. And so we spent the day actually doing the old school and driving around to little stores and little mom and pop toy shops and, you know, looking for those kinds of things. But I'm going to be totally honest. We're going to balance it with, we're going to still probably order a bunch of crap on Amazon. (laughs) You know, you know, I was just going to say, I think, I think that's, what's going to be interesting to see is, is how that balance over time happens. Right. Because I do see that there is a huge push from consumers to, Really, hey, I want to know that you're doing good in my community, that you're a part of my community, that you're being socially responsible. Ah, but you know what? It's also really, really efficient and uh, nice to just shop on Amazon. So so there's a balance, right? And we do both want and need both kinds of services. You know, one of the interesting ideas of, of a startup I've seen in the Middle East, which is a very interesting idea, that someone said that there is a uh, a lot of local stores that people only know and locally, but they make great food or great cheese or great, whatever, like great products, you know, and they have great stuff. So like how we can help those people. So 
he made a kind of a marketplace for those people with a delivery option. And he started going there doing a, uh, you know, this uh, technical photo shooting, helping them with their menus and pricing, taking order for them and all these kind of stuff. And he made huge difference in so many people's lives in local stores or, you know, those garage sale, we can say, like people who do things out of their garage or, or like something like that. So this is when we talk about technology taking people forward, fintech taking people forward, sustainability is taking people forward. I can now give you an sustainability initiative or a fintech initiative that worth $2 billion, but what is the impact? Zero. It's very important to measure impact of the decisions of your own startup, your own, because everyone is looking for this second grade idea. And we were speaking about the difference between evolution and innovation, like keep evolving, you know, something you're working, you, you, you did before or innovation, you know, actually it's fine. Change something that we're doing it and enhance it and add a value to it that make it better or innovate something that, but measure impact. Measurements of impact are more important than the action itself. Because I would say that if every one of us think, even from the time we woke up in the morning to time of sleep, if we think about every action we take into our day and what is impact out of that action, I think maybe two-thirds of what we do during the day, we wouldn't do it. Because maybe it's unnecessary. And just if we keep doing things that will make difference. We make difference between you and your wife, difference between you and your kids, the difference between you and your manager, between you and, and, and your colleagues, between you and your local community. If you just focus on things that will make impact, actually, less stress, less actions, and more meaningful life. <laughs> you know, that's a, you know, they always say, like, don't work hard, work smart. So why we don't we stop living hard and live smart, you know? Yeah, that, you, know, that, you you said earlier, you know, return on investment is important. It's not just important, yeah. it's quite frankly a requirement, right? Especially in a capitalist society. So the question is, what's the return that you're looking for? And who's the investor? And and ultimately what's the goal, right? And and you see a very wide spectrum across the globe of of yeah. what companies um, you know, how they kind of do that formula for themselves, right? And I think that's where the community financial institution is so incredibly unique and important here in the U.S., right? Especially take a credit union, right? They're non-for-profit. Who are their quote-unquote investors? It's their members. It's their actual consumers. So yes, a credit union will tell you that they are ultimately dedicated to bringing back a return on investment and value to their investors, but their investors are their members, Right. So that cycles back to you, whereas, you know, I'm just going to I'm not going to use any names, but, you know, pick on some brand new tech company who, you know, the CEO's goal is how can I make as much money as possible, as fast as possible for me? <laughs> right. Yes. That's going to be very different. Like their wise, their purposes are very, very different. At the end of the day, they're True. both trying to return investment to shareholders. The question is just, what's that return look like? What was the initial investment like? And who is the shareholder? And so, you know, from your perspective, when you look at the community financial institution model in the U.S., you know, how do you see that being done differently in different parts of the world? Yeah. And, and you know, that thing that like sometimes in, in typical uh, 
capitalist kind of a mindset. Like, you know, this term like uh, frustrates me, like angel investor, investor, you know? So like, I don't know, are you ready to lose your money for a good cause? What is the meaning of an angel investor, you know? So, so the thing is that like sometimes under, under capitalist kind of mindset, people think that, humble people think that there's certain impact, where well, in reality there is no, no impact. The reason of, I'll tell you something, there is no corporation throughout the history of, of any country that is selfishly looking for return on investment only and shareholder uh, options that have remained in a capitalist and communist in anywhere in the world. It will not remain. I can name to you million brand that is in the world that exists for 500 years and plus. Okay. Those ones, you will find they have a CSR. You will find an impact they're doing in their communities. But those other ones that a list of, of the corporation wouldn't have cared about, about that, that, that much. So if we want to go back, like <laughs> I have a question for you, Josh, like, uh, I don't know if you discussed this with any of your, uh, uh interviewees in the, uh, in podcast before or not. Why are you doing this podcast? What have inspired you to do this? Yeah, you know, uh, kind of what I mentioned in your opening introduction, I think what excites me about this podcast, you know, the podcast was actually kind of born as an accident. And I mean, back to actually take it all the way back again <laughs> to your intro, you know, if you had told me in high school that I'd host a podcast in the technology for banking space, I'd have told you you were crazy. You know, I never in a million years thought that this was something that I would do. And then when we started it, even then, I don't know if I would have told you that I would love it as much as I do today. And the reason that I love it so much today and what gets me so excited to get up early in the morning to host a podcast with somebody is... It's a learning experience for me. I'm just, I'm always clamoring for more information and more than just more information, it's different perspectives on that. You know, I, I don't want to get too cynical with this, but I think that's one of the big problems that I just see even in my own community, even in my own space, even in the own people that I talk with is we have just become so unavailable to have conversations with people that disagree with us or that have different ideas or perspectives or unique insights or, you know, different experiences that, you know, cause us to look at things or think about things differently or have different ideas. And what this podcast has become is just such a cool opportunity for me to have conversations with people of all walks of life with ideas I agree with, with ideas I disagree with, because ultimately giving me the exposure to all of that hopefully is going to make me a better, more rounded human that's able to contribute to my community. So, and, and this is, that's this what is the impact. Excited. Yep. And that's what we've been defining for the past five minutes about impact. There is an impact of that action on yourself that keep you going and you sustain it. Every day you have a podcast or every time you're recording a podcast, that what brings you back to do the same job with everyone. So there's an impact in you and there's definitely an impact on the community around you for one reason, because we are literally two professionals on the two different ends of the world. And we connected to do one podcast because we might be both creating impact in our zone, but there is a ripple effect of that impact that have, have brought, us, uh, to, brought, brought us together to be able to do that. This is what I'm talking about. Impact is the reason of existence at corporate level individual level, social life, everywhere is about impact. Make a difference. 
woke up to make a difference for everybody and for yourself, you know? Yeah, I just have to comment. It is funny. Um, folks can't see this on camera, but the sun is setting for Kareem and it's rising for me right now. <laughs> right. So how, how cool is that, that we're able to have this conversation where, you know, the two of us get to look each other in the eyes and, and really talk about the different perspectives that we have and the different things that we've seen. And, sure. you know, while you were talking, it made me think of something. I, I've, I've been thinking this a lot recently and I actually put it in, um, I think I actually even put it in a LinkedIn post subtly just last week, but I look at my customer base, Kareem, right? The the community financial institutions yeah. here in the US. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times um, I had a customer just this weekend who had some technology issues that basically caused inability for some of their consumers to be able to transact with them, right? Yeah. And I got on a bridge with them on a Saturday morning. We got some of our team involved just to try and help them with some of the things that we could maybe help them with. And I mean, I could just see the pain in their eyes, knowing mm-hmm. the weekend that was ahead of them, how much work they were going to have to put in, you know, the stress that they were going to endure, the fact that they weren't going to be hanging out with their families this weekend. They were probably going to be up super late, if not all night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like I could see that look in their eyes. But what I thought was really interesting about that and that this is not an isolated event. And it's not an isolated event just once for this customer. It's not an isolated event with just this one customer. It's I see it across all my customers time and time again, where for whatever reason, there's a lot of stress that's going on at that institution. There's a lot of late nights. And you know what the driving factor is for them? It's what you just said. It's impact, right? And so the comment that I made, like I said, kind of subtly, I think in a LinkedIn post was just that, I don't think consumers really know just how much the community financial institutions here care about them. And like literally watching this team go through the pains of we're going to be up all night. It was not because I'm going to get fired over this. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that's probably always, you know, a fear in the back of people's minds. But that wasn't the driving factor. And it's very, very clear. That's not the driving factor. The driving factor is there's an inconvenience to my consumer. And my consumer relies on me for their financial well-being and for their stress tied to money. And so for them, it was all about how can I make sure, you know, I guess it's kind of the inverse here. Like the impact is as minimal as possible to them. But like my impact is that we take care of our people. And I just, I see that time and time and time again. I don't think the average U.S. consumer has any idea just how many late nights people at small credit unions have stayed up to make sure that their lives are better. And I think that that's pretty cool. And And that's neat to see that driving factor in humans. And and you know, Josh, why this happening on a level of credit unions or community banking or something? Because there is an um, emotional connection between them and their clients. Why? Because this is in a, in a small neighborhood or a small jurisdiction where actually literally the same customer you will walk and you'll see him in the same store, in the same uh, plaza, in the same hospital and everywhere. So that emotional bond between you and your client is very important. That's why when it comes to digital transformation and digital banking, it's very important factor that while you're doing, you know, all those kind of terminologies about customer journey mapping and all these kind of stuff and transaction SOPs and turnaround times and all these kind of things, 
is to try to find the real. And I don't think people think about, but maybe it's a, a, a thought to leave to our audience today is about how we can make digital transformation more emotionally intelligent, that it doesn't disconnect us as customer and corporate, but have a factor to bring us together in a way or another. Because actually, the most of the reason of organizations want to digitally transform is genuine. It's it's for good for customer. It's to save in, in time and challenges and bring things at their doorstep. You know, all these kind of stuff to make so the actual uh, cause of transformation most of the time is a uh, genuine cause. And and how we can make those techn- because a lot of feed around the world is about like when technology is taking over the humans. You know, like they say, like then we I don't know what we will do in our lives. You know we will always be needed, you know? We will have a job to do, you know? But it's a different job. Like, are we doing the same job that, like, 2022 uh, years before that that caveman was doing? <laughs> We're doing a different job, you know? And actually, in 3,500 years, that's in 1,000 years coming up ahead of us, they would look to us and say, like, oh, you remember those guys used to wear headphones and talk on the uh, something called PC and computers and, and iPads. And it's, oh, that's very late technology. They will find something else to do. Human nature is about survival and existence. So they will survive and exist for a reason. A different reason than ours. A different reason than the generations before us. The thing is that, like, in our generation, let's answer our questions. Let's solve our problems. Plus, make sure that we have a great heritage to leave to future generations. That's why we're very concerned about, as an institute and myself, about sustainability and the future of our planet. Because we should leave something for our kids. You have kids. I have have kids. So, like, I don't think both of us would love to leave something uh, not for use for our own kids. That's one thing. Second thing. Second thing is, like, okay, let's embrace technology. But let's do it in 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 a different way. Let's take it to a different way. Let's do something different with the technology. How we can make technology more emotionally intelligent. That's a very important question. How the startups, the fintech. That's why some people see it from a perspective like let's have a social reason for existence. So customer connect about it. Now community banking is evolving to the social media banking. Now you hear about like Facebook being a bank or this or this. This is a type of community because the social media, the whole metaverse is about is about what? Bring people together. Even people want to exist together in the metaverse. You know? It's, it's, it's not like, okay, I'll have my own uh, land and I will be living in isolation. You know? So, so that's the thing. We would love to be around each other. So that's a that's very, very important thought to leave people thinking about. Like when you're trying to work for a digital transformation, we're talking about techie guys who might be listening to us with the do processes or they do all these kind of digital transformation. Once you complete an amazing customer journey or you do an agile approach of changing the whole world, ask yourself one question. Impact on people to what, how I can make that process more emotional so customers feels me. You know, I remember when call centers started, you know, that's we're talking more than 30, 40, 50 years back, I don't know. When call center agents you used to get training, they always used to say, a smile 
while you're talking to the client because it's contagious, even if you don't see, you know? So I would say for people designing maps and doing digital transformation, a smile in the process, the customer might see. I love that. You know, it's really interesting that you've brought up digital transformation a number of times because it's the number one most talked about topic on this podcast since our podcast's inception. And, you know, again, so to have a guest where my son's rising and his son's setting to be talking about digital transformation, this goes back to the comment you made from earlier. There's more commonality in the challenges that we face than there is differences. And so we are really all in this together. And globally, we're talking about digital transformation. And what does that actually mean? One of the things that I found really fascinating is just asking each of my guests to define what does digital transformation mean to you? So what does digital transformation mean to you? I think I've got a pretty good idea based on how you've talked about it, but I'd be curious just to ask you the, the direct question. You know, what, is, what does digital transformation mean to you, Kareem? Digital transformation means for me from two ends. If I'm creating a digital solution to any clients, because I have clients who would look for digital solutions in education, EdTech is a big talk now, and we're doing a lot of EdTech. In, in my institute. It's about that I would always be the guy who's around the table asking what impact we're making. Is it delivering our emotions to the other end that we want you to learn something that will make difference in your life? And if I'm a customer, I only, I will try and I will try to, to keep advocating for that, that like, please, 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 please. Technology is something to make our lives easier but it doesn't mean it takes our lives because you just said about you yourself and, and your wife and your Christmas shopping and Thanksgiving week that you find out there's something exciting about going local stores. You know, it keeps the relationship going out rather than having a delivery of pizza while we don't eat them. There's, it will have an impact, will help the local restaurant and will keep it surviving and we'll have a great time outside the house. You know, so like always try to use strike the right balance between being tech savvy and human. It's so funny that you use that as the example because my wife and I ended up making a comment about it that night. So we ultimately plan on doing all of our Christmas shopping and then have a date night together, go have dinner and everything. And grandma and grandpa were all set mm -hmm. to watch Little Man. And, you know, we got, got done all the Christmas shopping and we said, well, where are we going to go for dinner? And where we'd originally made reservations just didn't really sound good anymore. Um, yeah. and I think we were, you know, totally turning into those parents who'd now been away from our kid for long enough. And we just really missed him. And he had just woken up from a nap <laughs> and we were like, screw it. We're, we're going to go grab him <laughs> and go home. And we ordered a pizza. <laughs> and, but so this is what's interesting, right? So as we talk about digital transformation, so we actually both commented about one of the reasons why we order pizza from where I'll tell you we ended up ordering it from is because of how they have digitally transformed that company. And we ordered pizza from Domino's and yes. the Domino's <laughs> app has gotten phenomenal. And yeah. so preparing it literally, your pizza, like the olives in your pizza. Now the guy took the pizza slice out. Yes, <laughs> exactly. No, it made it. So they did, they do a great job of like 
your local store is uh, uh, just thinking about how they use their messaging, right? Like your local store that's owned by a local owner is now preparing your pizza. Oh, your local driver is now out and is in your neighborhood. And so they do a really good job of Domino's is a global brand. They didn't, they didn't you smell the pizza out of the application? Yeah, I know. I mean, they're getting close to it, I think. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Making digital transformation that be- transfer not only the technology, but transfer the emotions around. Yeah, that's what that's that's let's say if we take dominoes as an example, a I that's what I'm talking about. This is a proof of concept that it's possible. Yeah, that was exactly the conversation that we had because we felt like, you know, dominoes had done a great job of I think for a while there, I don't even I I, I should actually do my research on this. I, I think for a while there, they were actually in pretty bad uh, trouble. Right. And they potentially were going to go under and they've completely reinvented that company. And I think just the way that they now communicate with their consumers is much more human and they've done it yes. digitally. And mm-hmm. I think that's so not to necessarily put words in your mouth, but I just found it really hilarious that you used pizza yes. as an example. Yes. And yes. as you were defining digital transformation, I think in your perspective, right, like that is digital transformation. It's, it's really yes. humanizing the ability to still have um, that touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy through technology to allow us to continue to, um, you know, build relationships with companies and companies that ultimately have the right focus on impact. True. And you know, I'll tell you something. I think, and we leave it as an open-ended question about that section that consumers don't go to places where they get the best product, but they go to places where they get the best experience. Because I, I can guarantee you there's someone out there doing a pizza better than Domino's, for example. But yeah, I still, so, like, you no would order Domino's, Domino's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You ordered Domino's, you had the experience, and you will order Domino's again for the experience, you know? And I'll tell you something uh, funny enough, like, uh, I would say it, it might be a pretty great night for you and your wife for one reason, because me and my wife always, our best experiences is the ones that never been planned, you know? So, like, you plan for the outing and go out there and all these kind of things and end up with the Domino's pizza at home. Sometimes it's better than going maybe to whatever, like, uh, fancy restaurant and, and, and planned experience. I always, like, I'm a bit of a spontaneous guy sometimes in my social life, so I like to go with the flow. And when the flow is nice, then it's a better experience, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it it's how do we continue to look to have the right people aspect in doing digital transformation so that continues right and you kind of talked about that earlier i think you know you made the comment around you know who who's kind of the one directing the traffic will you right and this is interestingly enough another topic that's come up a few times on the podcast recently is you know as we think about technology being so much more integrated into our lives who programs the tech is going to have a really big impact on that right so you're um, do it with a smile. Like, are you, are you writing technology with a smile or are you writing it with a, you know, an angry face? Because those two pieces of technology are going to interact with humans very, very differently based on, quite frankly, just even True. the mood the developer may have been in. True. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's very important that people understand that emotions 
transfers across any medium. You know, it doesn't need face-to-face. Because I'll tell you something, how many of us attended funerals, weddings, bad moments, good moments during pandemic over Zoom or Teams or any digital connection? And we cried and we laughed and we celebrated and we enjoyed Christmas and we enjoyed celebrations. We enjoyed so many things over Zoom. So it transferred, you know? And we know now even when we need to be around each other and when we don't need to be around each other, we know, we know that, you know? So I think, you know, this last three, four years, uh, Josh, have given digital transformation and sustainability a great push that if they were calling for it for 20 years, they wouldn't got that same chance, you know? But still, it gives them more a challenge than actually a... Uh, more, more of a challenge than actually a uh, boost. Why? Because what's next? That's the question that we need to find. What is our next set of value proposition would bring to the people through technology? You know, that's, that's a question. It's very important uh, for, for, for someone to answer and for a young generation to make an innovative idea to change the world, you know, around them and around us. So that, that's, that's, uh, that's very important. So hopefully we, we see human mankind, uh, the mankind improving over the, over years. You know, that is what's uh, going back to your question to me about the podcast. You know, this is, this is what's so cool about this is um, just like you said, you, you know, we have more commonalities than differences across the world. We're all human. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. all imperfect and we're all trying to get by and we're trying to make the best of our lives. And, I think the vast majority of people are trying to do it right Mm. and are trying to do good and are trying to have impact in the positive sense. And that's a, that's a global trait. (laughs) That's not a local trait. That's something that we see no matter where we are. And it's really exciting to be able to have conversations with people like yourself on this podcast. You know, maybe one day I'll have to get a, a total jerk on the podcast or something. I don't know. You know, I, I, I always appreciate that, you know, my guests bring unique perspectives and sometimes maybe on a nuanced element or on a strategic approach to it. I may disagree slightly, but, you know, overall, I agree with my guests because the overall theme of of every guest we've ever had is, is just that we're all on this, you know, rock hurtling through space together. (laughs) And we are all in this together, trying to get through it together and trying to do it the best way that we can. And there's a lot of people that are looking at, you know, how do we solve the common challenges that we all have? What are the tools that we have available to us? And and how do we do it in the way that provides the biggest and the best impact to the people around us? And that's, I think, the common trait of all the guests that we've had that that I ultimately always agree with. And it's just, like I said, it's really cool to be able to see, you know, somebody from a completely different part of the world who validates a lot of that and says, hey, look, we are we are all on the same path. There's a lot of things that we're all, you know, like I said, commonalities going through together. So I, I think it's really neat to see that perspective from you, Kareem. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josh. And actually, this is a great podcast and something I would remember, you know, always in my life that we had that great chat. And actually, I think the only thing that we did very well in this podcast is that we didn't follow any things that we discussed before you know, we recorded. <laughs> like you said, you know, sometimes the spontaneous is, is better than Chicken the planned. Yeah. 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 Yes. You know, I, that's yes. the other thing that 
you know, when we started this podcast, that was kind of my, that was my hard rule was, uh, I'm a terrible interviewer and I'm a terrible interviewee. And I was like, so this is going to be just a, you know, canned question and answer kind of podcast. I'm just, I'm not in because ultimately I, I think I'm the most difficult and I'm the most difficult person that you can put him in perspective because I can choke on my feet and have so many contradicting ideas. So, so the thing is that, like, I think that's where we never, both of us stick to the, to even any of the discussions we had prior to this. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It just, it, I think it does. It leads us to a lot more, you know, organic and natural conversation where, you know, sometimes the, the very first soundbite or thing that we think to say isn't ultimately what we, you know, actually want to drive down towards. And by having just an open forum like this, I think a lot of times we get into you know, more interesting elements of the conversation than we would if I just asked you a very pointed question, gave you 10 seconds to answer and then moved on. I think there's a lot of, you know, value in that type of uh, scenario as well. But this is fun for me to just be able to, like we were saying, you know, meet up at an airport somewhere and, and have a beer together and, and chat. So. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I this is a podcast that I will tell my boys to listen to, you know, because I think they will... Uh, it's something that I think we will be able to also learn from your side and from the comments you made, uh, Joss. It's, uh, to be very honest, it's, uh, although you're trying to uh, claim that you are a bad interviewer, but actually being able to open up that much for the past hour and 15 minutes is, uh, it requires an uh, undercover skill, oh, you know? <laughs> I, that. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Kareem, you know, before I, I let you go to your evening, I have two final questions for you, sir. So the Please. first is just with all your travels, with all of the different markets and areas that you cover and, you know, all the education that you're trying to offer, you know, what are the places that you go to get information? So what are some of your favorite resources? I would say that a one of the most interesting resources for me is the uh, education classroom. You know, like when, when I go to any of our virtual classrooms, listening to uh, faculty members delivering a program and listening to the interaction, that gives you a lot of insight about what's going on, especially we're talking about the technical parts of the industry. So that's one of the insights. The other insight, when I work with our faculty and colleagues who are spread around the world and we start discussing a client request or a banking challenge, so you hear so many perspectives from so many different reasons different backgrounds and, and 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 that's why i always told you like i get access to more which i think i'm privileged to i get access to international bankers and local bankers around the world where i listen to so many people so i i can claim that there is more commonality than things differentiating us a uh, that's the part is uh, i always am saying i'm part I'm, I'm an extrovert learner I'm not an introvert learner. I don't do a research and sit on Google and read an article and something like that. I learn through groups. I attend conferences. I uh, I listen to uh, different uh, experts talking about the industry or analysis or something like that. So I build my own understanding out, out of that. So that's what I call like I'm a more of an extrovert learner than actually being an introvert learner who I need to get to the book and read chapter by chapter. A, uh, it's also the uh, leveraging the uh, progressive learning and the wealth of others of education who are able to share. And that's part of our story as an institute, you know, that we have webinars, podcasts, uh, publications, articles, and those kind of things are 
in 20 pages, you will get 50, 60 experts writing something together. So you can have a, a bit of a short list. So that's, uh, that's very uh, important for me. That's how I learn about them. That's how I learn in life in general, it's out of my kids. You know, and once That's your awesome. once your son is like start going to school and start being in, you will just ask him how was your day, and he will learn so many things as a kid. You know, actually, sorry, not to bunny trail us off too much on this, but I think that is a fascinating approach is to watch watch children learn because I feel like I've even you know caught myself in that in watching my son learn. I want to teach him a certain way to do something but he's never seen it or never done it or never experienced it. And then he comes in and does it differently. Even at a year and a half old, he'll do something differently. And sometimes I'll be like, no, 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 bud, that's not how you do. Well, no, I mean, it worked. So why am I telling you, you can't do it that way. That was just a different way of doing it. That has been fascinating as a parent to experience. Okay. True. And the more the, he grows in and, and the more you will learn from him. Actually, I always say that, being a father or being a parent is your second life because you will learn everything again from scratch. Hmm. Even like if I, when I, when I see my kids, how they learn math, for example, in school, it is completely different than how we learn in school. They do those kinds of games and things and hands and all these kinds of stuff. And like then suddenly they come up with stuff. Science is different. Things is different. So being a parent, having those conversations with your kid is your second chance to it's a second chance for you to change the first impression you had about your own life. <laughs> mm, <that's laughs> we really can cool. say. Yeah. Kareem, one last question for you. So if people want to learn a little bit more about the Institute and what you all are doing, or if they want to connect with you, how can they do those things? We have our uh, home website is uh, LIBF, London Institute Banking Finance, at, uh, sorry, LIBF.ac.uk. That's the website. And there is also libfmina.ac.uk, which is the regional website for our institute in the Middle East. And as well, if they want to follow me or like uh, have a LinkedIn connection or something like that, I accept all the connections. Okay, so like uh, Karim, first name, last name, Rifai at uh, LinkedIn, you know. So <laughs> that's the LinkedIn profile. I uh, And uh, people can reach out to me on a uh, any... Uh, of the banking and finance uh, challenges and let's see how we can work together towards it. That's awesome. Uh, Kareem, again, seriously, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and be a guest on this show. It's just, it's so neat to be able to have had this kind of exposure to be able to meet new people like yourself. And hopefully one day I will actually get a chance to run into you in an airport because this has just been fascinating yes. conversation. And it's, it's really cool again to see just, how sometimes we may look at or think about things a little bit differently, but just how alike we all really are. So thank you for coming being a guest on the Digital Banking Podcast. Josh, it's my pleasure and thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to the Digital Banking Podcast powered by Typhoon. Find more episodes on digitalbankingpodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Typhoon. Everyone builds features. Not everyone builds relationships. We build both.